0: Hello, and welcome to episode 66 of Future Chat from Unwind Media. Every week on this show, we aim to discuss all of the week's most interesting science and tech news, and thank you for joining us. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. To help out the show and get a free audiobook of your choice, as well as a free 30-day trial, please do visit audibletrial.com unwind. They have more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products, and you can get one free today. Again, that uh, URL is com slash unwind. All right, guys, we have entered, I guess, week three, week two or three of the summer doldrums, um, but unlike last week, there are so many stories here. I don't even have to pretend there are a lot. There's just tons. Uh, Nick is back with us. Nick, how are you doing? Um, I'm tired. Yeah.
1: But you're here. This this weather is just ugh. It's <laughs> gloomy outside, but it's also not thirty degrees. So we'll call it a wash.
0: Fair enough.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Mike, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing okay. I I finished my uh fence building project from this past week that took way longer than I anticipated, but
0: Yeah, you meant done. for it to be one evening, is that right?
2: I I meant for it to be half a day. Okay. And it took a half day plus four evenings plus another couple hours on Saturday. <laughs> but I have a newfound respect for fence builders.
0: Okay. Well, At least ones that part? want to do
2: it properly because yeah. I'm just way too picky about how things look. So that's why it took so long. You wanted everything
0: have, to be lined up? Yeah. Yeah. I have previously
1: worked installing fences and I yeah, can confirm. Yep. Yeah. It is a monstrous job.
0: Awesome. But yeah. it's done now. It's done. So nice.
2: On to the next DIY. <laughs>
0: um, so, guys, there's a couple of things to follow up on from previous weeks. Uh, specifically, the thing that everyone is talking about, but that there isn't yet a ton of huge news on, is Pluto. Uh, the New Horizons spacecraft continues to approach Pluto at a very rapid clip. Uh, it's supposed to be passing... At it's closest pass is supposed to be on the fourteenth, I believe, the Tuesday. Uh I'm not sure exactly the time, but basically what they're getting now is we're getting into the this is the best view we're ever going to have of this planet for a long time sort of situation. And non non
2: planet, by the way. It's a planet. Yeah. It's the,
0: the word planet is in the description we still use for it. Is it, it gonna, it's
1: a dwar- It's uh, formally known as a dwarf planet now, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm going to call it a planet because that's way easier. Um, I, I, I'm going to say, for the record, you can call Pluto whatever you want. I'm not going to judge, but a dwarf planet yeah, what, is still a planet. It's just smaller.
1: What does the International Astro- Astronomical Union know about anything, really? Exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so this specific story I'm looking at. Uh, again so nasa's putting up pictures as they get them of of the the best images they have of pluto and they're limited to only being able to send so much data back and it takes something like nine hours for the data to actually come back but they've been looking as the as the uh spacecraft new horizons approaches we've been getting better and better looks at the so-called i, I guess it's the the back side of the moon is how they're referring to it or the planet because uh it's the one that we're not gonna see in as much detail because it's gonna be facing away from us as the spacecraft goes by and so the the latest image that they that they've sent back is of that back side the side that we're not gonna get in great detail and so this is this is literally the the photo we've just gotten is literally the best resolution image we're gonna get for a couple decades until the next spacecraft or another spacecraft gets out there and uh Honestly, I was kind of disappointed in the image because it's really, it's pixely, it's still like 2 million miles away or something like that. And uh, there's a lot of really interesting detail that you can kind of see, but it would be really interesting to see it in a better detail. And we're only going to get to see the the front side, the the main side in great detail. Because I don't know if you guys have have sort of pondered the math of... The New Horizon spacecraft but it took nine years to get out there uh, with several planetary uh, redirects like gravity slingshots and very very few sort of fueling direction changes but they're getting within something it's like a few thousand kilometers of this planet that's millions of kilometers away I just think like I gotta give an, like a round of applause to the rocket scientists at NASA for being able to do that in such an awesome way to be able to to get within a few thousand kilometers of something that far away
1: I, so what I'm hearing is you want you want to applaud them for getting that close, but you're still super disappointed in the resolution of that photograph
0: of the back of the rear
1: side, yes so using ten year old technology
0: right <laughs> so ca- cameras are, are good no matter what like if ten year old camera if you're looking talking about pluto it's going to get detail you can get a detailed image but basically what this made me realize and i had never really thought about it in this way we're basically firing a bullet into space and doing the best we can to make it go as fast as possible to get there really quickly but then it's a bullet it has no brakes there's no reasonable way to to slow down the spacecraft when it gets there so it's just gonna like zoom past at incredibly high speeds and all we can do is basically aim our camera the best we can and take a couple pictures as we're going by it just makes me realize how how difficult space is for all those considerations like you can't just bring an unlimited amount of fuel to space because of the weight issue and braking is even really hard even if you had a lot of fuel because it takes a bunch of time to build up that speed and so it's going to take a bunch more time to slow this spacecraft back down if you actually wanted to orbit pluto for instance
2: yeah so Going back to your admiration point, I'd also to like to add in that computer technology helps a lot with modeling and calculating. So they had quite a bit of help in determining the best trajectory and how much fuel they'd need and all that kind of stuff. Not, not to take away from their skill and, and expertise, but computers have come a long way. And the modeling that they do for, for space travel definitely helps out quite a bit.
0: True, and Although,
2: also, also they are doing the corrections they need of their trajectory to stay on path.
0: Yeah. So it's yeah.
2: it's not like they're like one shot, and it's like, well, that's it. Hopefully, it hits it. Like you're still. They, yeah, they have
0: limited opportunities to do that, but it's not.
1: But they still do it as needed. So it's like it's less a cannon and more like what would you call it? Something on a trajectory that like can alter its path <laughs> in live lifetime. <laughs>
0: Uh, a rocket. It's more like a rocket. That's what it is. I hope you're not trying to to belittle the things that they. No, have I'm not. That's
2: why I said I'm not trying to take away from it. <laughs>
0: no, I'm belittling Rob's nomenclature. <laughs> <laughs> so they. It's my understanding, actually, that at NASA they have a specific teams of people when they launch rockets that actually do these calculations by hand. I'm sure there are computers that are involved, like Check the Math, for instance, but it's my understanding that they still do a lot of those calculations by hand to make sure that they're right.
2: Well, maybe by Excel spreadsheet. I don't know, by hand.
0: But, I mean, manually. That would just like, be not the stupidest idea. <laughs> <laughs> for which, to use Excel? <laughs> no, to do it all by hand. That's how it... I, I'm I'm almost certain that's how it's done. Okay. It's also. It's got to be...
1: It's got to be heavily reliant upon um, computers, though, and yeah. modeling, because that's
0: that's a vastly underdetermined system. Yeah. So that's, that's what I've heard. They, it, again, they've probably modernized since the original rocket launches, but I know the Apollo missions were all calculated. The trajectories were calculated by hand.
2: And look where and that they, got them wrong. And they
0: still <laughs> they got them to the moon. <laughs> once in like (laughs) 13 tries (laughs) they they went to the moon several times it wasn't just once details (laughs) they also i was reading the uh on reddit i believe it was um that the first moon landing they had like 25 seconds left of fuel when they touched down on on the moon for the first time like that is crazy good planning because you you do want a little bit of extra, but I mean, that's cutting it really close.
2: Yeah. Uh. Before we move on, I know we have other space stories, but talking about Pluto and how cool it is, the one thing that I was, I, I almost want to say shocked was that Pluto wasn't blue. Like, okay. it's brown and you always think of it as like an icy planet, like blue. Like, you always just, Pluto's blue. Do you? That, that, maybe that's just me. But I don't know about you guys. But when when you see and it's, like, brown, it's like, oh, well, that's not exciting. Like, it's
1: just dirt. I don't know what I thought, but a lot, aren't a lot of the images, like, falsely colored? No. they're
2: No, they're based on actual colors. They, they're enhanced, okay. but... Oh
0: yeah they colorize them based on a different there's they have the camera that takes the images and they have a camera that captures the colors and then they map the color onto the image okay yeah but yeah i mean it's like a dirty snowball but with more rock than snow
2: right but i don't know it's it kind of (laughs) crushes that perception of what you'd think pluto's supposed to be
0: right that's interesting though
2: yeah hmm
0: uh so the next the next bit of follow-up i have here specifically relates to um and nick you're not gonna like this our discussion about slack from a few weeks ago so someone put a story here or uh, someone blogged about um a douglas adams reference from his book the salmon of doubt uh douglas adams of um hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy fame uh he wrote uh A set of rules that describe reactions to technologies and so the first rule is anything that's in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and is just a natural part of the way the world works anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary and you can probably get a career in it and anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things and this has made me realize that Nick is now 36 years old. I don't, I don't know when that happened, but
2: happy birthday, Nick. (laughs) Thanks
0: guys. (laughs) I'm really, I'm really happy about aging 10 years in like a couple weeks. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. But it it strikes me as very true, but I really hope like I'm going to spend my life realizing that, like acknowledging that and trying to make sure that I stick with thinking that new technologies are, quote it uh quote new exciting and revolutionary so uh, i'm gonna keep uh keep trying on slack which i really enjoy and a lot of people uh in the 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 tweets i read and the socials i network uh are really excited about and uh hopefully that the next big thing that comes around when i reach a certain age will not uh will not befuddle me and make me think what are the kids doing these days have you guys ever considered what life after google would be like uh yes terrifying i think i
2: think so too do we, do i'm, I'm scared have,
1: do we still have a search engine like a good one? i don't know i
2: don't know, just I don't have know. Duck duck go yeah maybe altavista will come back
1: <laughs> it's funny because still when you say duck duck go i don't think of the search engine i yeah. just think of the board game
2: with the ducks yeah yeah <laughs> fabulous like, game by the way we're also so heavily invested in Google products that it's like, what am I going to do if it doesn't last?
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. It scares me
2: Well, uh, I don't know. This is also <laughs> just a
1: blogger who's decided his own order of things. Well, no, it's
0: Douglas Adams still he's he's a pretty well known writer of oh yes, I'm aware of things that are like. True and poignant and uh, I'm willing to I can certainly see where he's coming from in terms of people's reactions to technology in the in a general sense, obviously, yeah. there are specific people who can buck that trend, but in general that there's a lot of people true. that
1: buck that trend,
0: yeah, like older people
1: that find helpful technologies there are a lot of them who are yeah very eager adopters,
0: yeah it's true
2: I think the that same sentiment applies not just to technology but just to you know social paradigm shifts Mm -hmm. that happen to you know like politically or ethically like morally any of that kind of stuff once you've reached a certain age it's kind of against your natural acceptance tendency i think
0: yeah i think so too all right uh so the next the next bit of follow up I have here I I'm almost certain we talked about mosquitoes in a past episode. It might have been a couple months ago. We were talking about um they were talking about injecting or I guess inserting genes into mosquitoes that would cause them to die bef- before they hit sexual maturity, but it would allow them to sort of grow up. Uh and so they have now got a bit of information about the mosquitoes in question that are in that have been put out in the world and they've found that uh it gets rid of 9 out of 10 wild mosquitoes in in colonies where where they've put it uh yeah. put it out i think it was uh uh there there are specific um, specific species and colonies that they use these on and so they've done trials in uh Panama Brazil Malaysia and the Cayman Islands for dengue fever specifically and so the the, the 90% um they call it population suppression rate uh, is much better than the 30% that insecticides typically get. So um, I I don't know that this is great because it kind of seems like we're messing with nature and there might be ramifications that we're not thinking about in terms of what could happen if mosquitoes are wiped out or if, or if populations of mosquitoes in certain places are wiped out. But in terms of not spreading diseases like dengue fever or uh, another one they talk about is chicken gunya. Uh, virus so i'm I'm interested to see how this plays out on
1: that note um i forget what i was listening to or reading or whatever it was but a couple weeks ago i read a story about eliminating mosquitoes and stuff like that and They were discussing exactly that point, you know, what happens if we do just extinguish all these mosquitoes? Like, are there going to be unintended consequences? And the whoever the scientist or the scholar on the topic was replied saying, you know, there are a lot of species that play a very integral part in the ecosystem. But mosquitoes aren't really one of them. Hmm. like they they aren't a very significant food source to a lot of animals that wouldn't have access to something else and they really they're just really really good at spreading disease and that's about it so right. we could probably like, well, yeah, it would be disastrous for those diseases and the biodiversity of disease <laughs> but <laughs> Um, they were saying, you know, we could probably eliminate them without, uh, too many ill consequences.
0: That's good to hear.
1: Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's like, Nope, they're just annoying. Mm. They're
2: not good for anything. Just, just aggravating. Saying like a place like Winnipeg that has way too many mosquitoes. Like they're, they're a pretty integral part of the food chain there. Aren't they?
1: In that they? they eat people.
2: No, as in like <laughs> birds, birds and fish and other bugs eat them. Yeah, but I mean they're well,
1: maybe dragonflies,
0: but I don't know. Those
2: are fairly large.
0: There are lots of insects that that these species could rely on. I think is the point Nick was trying to make is that even if mosquitoes went away, there'd still be other bugs that yeah they could eat. So it's not like it would devastate an ecosystem. It would just. They're doing more harm than they are good for other yeah. species.
2: Well, they're the bottom of a food chain. Like they feed on us, but right. aside from that, well, they us and large mammals. Right, but you wouldn't have like an overpopulation of another type of bug if they went away. That's that's what I mean. Right.
0: I yeah. don't think so. I think yeah. I think it's fine that they go away. I, it'd be interesting to see the ramifications, but I don't think that it would be the worst thing in the world if there were just no more mosquitoes tomorrow. So also on this note,
1: what do you get when you cross a mosquito and a mountain climber? What? Nothing. You can't cross a scalar and a vector. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. A <laughs> <laughs> Vector. On
1: that in biology, note- uh, a mosquito is described as a disease vector yeah. because it carries disease. Okay. Gotcha. There you go. Nice one, Nick.
0: <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I like that one. Uh Nick, you have a piece of follow-up here on something called the Solar Impulse 2. Are we not familiar? May I don't think so. The name doesn't doesn't sound uh, familiar.
1: No, this is one of my uh my Kaya stories. Okay. It's the Solar Impulse. I think it's it's the first manned solar-powered airplane something air vehicle okay. like it's already shattered records and they were trying to get around the world yeah um, oh
2: this one i had a story about this one but i just oh, do you? to talk about it no i didn't add it though but okay this, this is one that recently landed in hawaii right yeah did it make it to hawaii
1: yeah it okay. was that
2: that was a record-breaking flight that it had just finished
1: but it's it's not looking good for its entire journey because it had a very small window to cross the Atlantic in 2015. Okay. And it doesn't look like the weather will be favorable for it to make a transatlantic crossing later. Yeah. Which, it's funny because it's still on the western side of that continent. But they're like, yeah, probably, probably can't do it. Hmm.
0: This year it can't do it. Yeah. I guess. Hmm.
2: What's your guys' feelings about these types of projects, either like solar vehicles that go on record-breaking journeys or, I guess in this case, solar airplanes? Like, in my eyes, it's not really a proof of concept of anything. It's just like, hey, we can do this.
0: Let's Isn't do that what it. a proof of concept is?
2: But a proof of concept is more like they're trying to prove something out to be a practical application for something else. I, like, you're never going to have single-manned airplanes purely solar powered as a primary means of transportation. That would be awesome though. That would be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: think what they want to do is prove that you can sustainably fly an aircraft on solar power, a one man aircraft. No, but it doesn't have to be any men, just an aircraft that can fly with solar power. Like indefinitely. That just doesn't have to come down
2: for what purpose.
0: Uh, Transport reconnaissance. Any number of things. Amazon deliveries. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Mostly the Amazon. Amazon guys. Drones are the future.
1: I was act that was actually my thought process. I was like, how much farther could this thing go if you didn't cram a person in there?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's the longest f- solo flight in an unrefueled vehicle, which is kind of unfair because it's kind of always being fueled.
2: Yeah. I agree.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah geez solar impulse too it just sounds like they're making it sound like it can break the law of conservation of energy but that's really just not what's happening at all that's what they're saying rob it's very efficient well they're saying it's unfueled no unrefueled yeah right but it's constantly being refueled it's like saying no, it's not like saying that. I guess it's kind of like saying <laughs> it's like saying flying. You're flying another aircraft above the solar powered aircraft that's like raining gasoline down onto it, and it's able to like <laughs> absorb the gasoline and use it. We're not technically refueling it; it's just having <laughs> gas. I wasn't on picturing
2: it. that at all, Rob. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> no, it was I. No, I had to kind of invent that scenario. But <laughs> saying that it's unrefueled is kind of tenuous to me because it is being refueled. So maybe that's just me. You know,
2: they actually do have mid-air refuelings. I know, yeah, airplanes. they do. Yeah, that's It really doesn't cool. rain down on the It airplane, doesn't rain little, down. Like osmosis.
0: But, but that would definitely be cheating. If you if you had a cargo <laughs> plane full of fuel that was just refueling it. That, that definitely counts as refueling. I was just trying to get around the technicality of it. Technically, it's not refueling because it's just raining down on it. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's enough with follow-up. Let's uh, move to the main our main news stories for the week. And the biggest one, certainly the biggest one that I saw, uh, is T-Mobile in the States as part of their on carrier initiative has, uh, made me want to switch to T-Mobile. Basically. Uh, they are now offering a plan similar to Rogers, uh, Rome like home plan, which basically you pay five extra dollars or five or 15 extra dollars a month. Some nominal, Small fee per month, and you can use your data uh, and your minutes and your texts anywhere in North America. Anywhere, I guess North America is Canada and the States. In that case, um,
2: I think in so any was, case, Rob.
0: No, because Mexico is part of North America. Unless no. you, unless Let's you, go you, Central America, right? But is Central America a continent? Do we want to have that debate? <laughs> I'm just going to stick with Canada and the U.S. <laughs> um, you know,
1: the rich, primarily white North America,
2: <laughs> <laughs> the true North America, Rob. Oh,
0: no. I'm <laughs> uh, getting racist up in this podcast.
2: <laughs> so, facetiously racist.
0: Yeah, so T-Mobile has a bunch of plans that will now have what they're calling free roaming, but it's basically just what cell phone service should be like, is that you pay your carrier for calling, data, and texts and you can use that anywhere you want, you don't have to pay like if you don't have one of these kinds of plans that allows you to roam for a nominal fee it's incredibly expensive to do anything with your phone unless you're in your home country and uh, so similarly to the way we've talked in the past about um, plans in manitoba and saskatchewan being way better than plans elsewhere in the country for rogers Telus, and bell um that made me want to get a plan to get a phone number for either saskatchewan or manitoba this makes me just want to get like an, a, any kind of American phone number to get this plan because it would ostensibly be cheaper than having Rogers in Canada. If you were on T-Mobile roaming in Canada, it's, it's cheaper. I, I'm sure there are conditions that would allow, allow that not to work, but I look forward to the future where that's a thing.
2: Yeah. On that note, there are conditions, uh, one of oh. which is 50% of your time has to be in the States ah uh, so every okay. month yeah like on a yeah on an ongoing i think within each billing period 50 percent of your usage has to be in the states what if it's right, not
0: like
1: what if rob just just moved just to brockville ontario mm-hmm. it's right across the saint lawrence from the states frequently you have to roam there just because that's the only tower you can pick up right yeah windsor ontario is the same I, I don't care for either city very much, but you <laughs> could do it, Rob. You could do it. I believe
0: but, in you. How does it work? Would you be charged more for roaming if you were gone? Like, if you went on a vacation to Canada for three weeks, what would happen? Probably just wouldn't be
1: eligible for the plan. Or wait, you e- <laughs> have you ever had plans to travel? You're not eligible for annually, this plan?
2: Annually, maybe? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't looked into it that much. I know they, they just talked about that in the article I read about it. Right. That people would have that same idea.
1: Six months time. There's a landmark Supreme court case that allows Rob to get his T-Mobile phone.
2: I'm sure it would get to the Supreme court.
1: I would love that in both countries too. (laughs) And only six months.
2: Um, but yeah, no, I, I like the idea of this kind of plan. Like we're, we're even planning a trip out of country and looking to see what we're going to do, you know, data wise. Uh, Thankfully, where we're going to be is going to have Wi-Fi like all throughout kind of easy access. So it's not going to be necessary to rely on our mobile data, but we're still going to use like our Fido dollars to get just the U.S. Uh, travel package thing that they have. Right. Um, just kind of as a safety net, I guess. But yeah, th- there aren't a whole lot of options for traveling people out of their own because kind of zone without having to pay roaming charges. Like you can always, you know, go with the services that have like the pay as you go, um, you know, travel, you know, they, they cater to people traveling kind of thing, but who wants to do that? Right. Like you'd right. rather just bring your phone and not have to worry about it. So hopefully this is a sign of the future. And one of the things that I found interesting was T-Mobile is still actually ending up paying roaming charges to the other carriers for their users roaming, but they're just not passing that charge onto the users. Hmm. So it's kind of like a value added thing like so they're not just getting rid of roaming they're just eating the cost of paying those roaming charges to the other carriers.
0: Well, it, that seems strange to me. I did not I did not hear that detail but yeah. that It's great but I don't see it as being financially feasible somehow.
2: Well there's still wow. they're still having to charge I think they said $10 a month. Yeah like you said to people who aren't on the qualifying plans so okay. they're still making some of their money back and the rest of the fee might be integrated just taken out of their profit margin i guess but it's obviously they're hoping to gain enough new subscribers through this that it's going to make up for that right that additional cost i guess
1: yeah, yeah my question would be how much are you ever going to really
0: roam ever all the are. yeah true I would go, I would take trips just because of that.
1: Rob just takes pictures of himself (laughs) in Mexico. Look at me. I'm roaming for free. Woo.
0: (laughs) I would do that. I know. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited to see what this means for the future. But for now, if you're in the States, T-Mobile is, has always been a pretty great option in terms of their CEO doing pretty crazy things like this. Uh, for their customers
2: or their marketing department
0: yeah yeah it'll be interesting to see what the competition comes up with
1: rob do you know what i'm excited to see what's that i am excited to see a giant robot fight between the united states and japan (laughs) speaking of our next story (laughs) yeah you were like yeah top story this week t-mobile i was like nope good try rob but that's not the biggest story this week What is the biggest story this week, Nick? The US has challenged Japan to a giant robot fight. And -hmm. I believe Japan has accepted. (laughs) That is a great headline. Do you remember Mech Warrior? Oh, yeah. It's going to be like Mech Warrior playing out live with probably a lot less shrapnel. (laughs)
0: Less shrapnel.
1: Less shrapnel. I assume because I assume there will be spectators and shrapnel is not friendly to spectators.
0: Right. We're just big bags of meat. Now are these robots? I'm watching the video now. Are these robots or are they think- m- manned? They look okay. manned.
1: My my first question is doesn't matter giant <laughs> robots. Um my yeah, I don't know. That's They look question. manned.
0: But it's also with paintballs. Is that (laughs) they're fighting with paintball guns, like giant paintball guns? I guess. Huh?
1: Just just look at the pictures of them. I'm looking at the pictures.
0: (laughs) It looks like Avatar or, or some other science fiction thing that I probably didn't watch. They look to be like
1: at least six meters high. Yeah. Just, my goodness. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Have you guys so, ever watched Robot Wars? Yeah, yes. it's like
1: that on a grand scale. Yeah, those are a pretty good show. Like, you know in Futurama, where they go to see the robot fights?
0: Yes.
2: If is that it like is that?
1: actually the future, I will be so happy.
2: <laughs> I, only, I came up with the idea of robots versus wrestlers. And I got all excited, but, and I realized that wasn't that what this was.
0: You came up with the idea?
2: No, I, I, when I first, when you first said a robot fight, I was thinking robots versus wrestlers and I realized there are no wrestlers involved.
0: No, I am intrigued by by this. Right. Even though it's a year away. I just,
1: I can't wait. Can we do like, can we do like a live hangout when this happens? (laughs)
0: probably i don't know if it'll be streamed or or if it'll be youtube yeah the japanese team is choosing the location they'll probably pick japan i would assume (laughs) because it It seems seems like it'd it'd be really expensive to get your giant robot across the ocean
1: (laughs) they should do it on one of those like little pacific islands (laughs) just (laughs) just make it
0: fully the plot of pacific rim sorry the, the movie Pacific Rim where they had I, giant robots and then they'll awaken uh, some type of alien sea monster and then have to fight that out. Well, wouldn't that be cliche? I'm not sure it would. Like, it, it wouldn't be cliche because it's like actually giant,
1: happening. Giant mechanical warriors and awakening giant sea monsters. Like, it <laughs> it seems pretty cliche.
0: Oh, reality. Always following those story cliches. <laughs> yeah uh but yes we we will continue to keep our eye on the giant robot fight as it develops i'm, I'm not sure this news is bigger than the the <laughs>
1: I am stuff 100 percent certain that this is bigger <laughs> news than t-mobile
2: rob okay. i'm glad you brought that up because i was gonna say the same thing <laughs> sorry nick <laughs> no just because it's a year away i'm not saying it's not gonna be cool yeah in
0: a <laughs> year it will be much more interesting <laughs>
2: I just think it's going to be very anticlimactic with what's actually going to happen. It sounds cool. I just wait yeah. to see if it ends Every up Every time I hear sound. the
1: words giant robot fight used together, I get this little childish grin on my face.
2: Yeah. But I get that with free roaming in North America. That's in the States. And Mexico.
0: Yep. So it does look like it's going to be paintballs. If it was, like if it was a non-spectator sport and that they had just video cameras filming it and everyone was miles away because they're using high explosives, that would get my excitement up to roaming levels. But yeah. this sounds like it's fun and it's very interesting for the future of robotics, but it's not imminently more interesting.
1: Oh, I don't even think it has much to do with the future of robotics. Yeah, I could see like maybe robotic warfare-ish yeah. sort of stuff, like armored infantry. Yeah, but my prediction, my bold, possibly foolish prediction, is that this ro- robot fight will happen before you get an equivalent plan in Canada.
0: I will guarantee that will happen. Cool. Can someone <laughs> even if calendar? this gets delayed? <laughs> All right. Uh, the next story I have here, since Mike. Uh, Mike, your stories are all considerably less important than the ones we have here uh, for this week. Uh, the second story that I have is, this is something that comes up a lot on this show and in science in general. Uh, the title of the article from Vox.com is called, uh, or the title is, How to Avoid Getting Duped by Bad Research in Five Case Studies. And this article it basically talks about uh, a guide that the CDC the Centers for Disease Control uh, put out, and so it 's listing five biases that come up a lot in research publications and ways to recognize those in sort of sensationalized science stories and how to avoid being fooled by them because this something comes up a lot where we we will one of us will post a link. And we'll all go, wow, that sounds so cool. But then immediately go into skeptic mode and go, uh, so that probably isn't exactly what we think it is. And I don't know that this is a real news story. This is just something that for this or this or this reason is bad. And I thought it would be fun to uh, to maybe use this in the future if we wanted to uh, see if the news stories we were looking at or thought were interesting were actually interesting and to just go through and, and see how just how many of the studies that come out fall victim to one or more of these biases. Uh, so for example, the first one they talk about and this is a pretty long uh, guide so I'll put a link to it but the the first one here which I'll just talk about a little um, is called healthy user bias. So this is when you're comparing two groups Uh, one group who is getting or who is not getting intervention, medical intervention, and one unhealthy group who is getting it. And so you can, it's basically, uh, it's a type of selection bias that occurs when investigators fail to account for the fact that individuals who are more health conscious and actively seek treatment for health problems are generally destined to be healthier than those who do not. And so there are a lot of studies that will compare a group of healthy people with a group of unhealthy people and go, wow, the unhealthy people are unhealthy. And then use that to say, oh, well, that's that has something to do with the outcome of the study when really there's just that's what's going to happen. If you if you formulate your study in that way. Uh, there are a bunch of others or there are four others, I guess, but. Um, I would rather go through in detail this just I just saw this today. So I'd rather go through in detail and maybe if if interesting things come up, maybe we can talk more about this in the future. But uh, I think anything that especially scientists and medical researchers can do to limit the amount of studies that come out that are sensationalized or done with sort of not taking biases into account, if we can reduce that, it's going to be good overall for for the scientific community in general and, and the population as a whole. Any thoughts to add?
2: The thing I don't like as much about trying to decide whether a scientific discovery is valid is the articles that are available, you generally don't get any insight into their methodology and their potential biases. And if you wanted to, you'd have to read the paper, which is behind a paywall. Yeah. So it's. For, for people who even want to look into it deeper, you generally can't do it super easily, which is unfortunate. So you almost have to – all you have to rely on is either the articles that's reporting on it, which are generally useless, or the abstract that's free, which doesn't give any insight into it either, really.
1: Right. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we could just go down like a train a few stops and – hop off and go to a magical land of knowledge where they just let you get past those paywalls.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, don't you know love if, learning.
2: I don't know if you're sarcastically referring to a library, but or a school, like a, a, some
1: sort of place where they do a lot of learning, like a university.
2: If if I could travel to every university that the research was done at that I want to, then no, I mean, that'd U be Calgary. amazing.
1: You could
2: probably Not every library. study comes out of U Calgary, Nick. No,
1: but
0: they they
1: have access to the journal,
2: probably. If you're a student member there.
0: Or an alumni. No,
2: alumni don't get paper access. On what? On campus? No, you'd need need like a student library card.
1: U of O always had a bank of computers that was just open to the public for doing research on.
2: I don't think ours has that. I,
0: check. Yeah. I would be very disappointed in calgary if they didn't have that maybe you I didn't use ex- it i
1: would be extremely disappointed in you calgary if they don't have it <laughs> mike we're going to you calgary <laughs> we Sounds at least good. need to find out for sure that, Can't trip. just leave that <laughs> we'll Let's do it. we'll do like investigative journalism style but we'll basically have to use a laptop and a mic <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah Uh, so yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to read these case studies, but, uh, for the time being, go check out the guide. If you, if you find yourself reading a lot of medical studies and wondering whether they're real or not, which happens to me all the time, I I read the the headline and I'm like, wow, that seems so cool. I hope it is real and not made up in this, this or this way. Nick, you got a story here about, uh, the U S army and solar cells. Yeah they have developed
1: new solar cells that are a thousand times thinner than current technology. And having read the article, that's basically it.
0: Okay. It is the military. So
1: they're that much more efficient though, just in terms of material usage and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I find it interesting that you have this organization that's just full of stereotypically very conservative thinking but they're also some of the leaders in renewable energy because they they want that energy
2: security at their disposal
0: yeah it makes sense yeah
2: part of it too is that they're often in situations where there may not be fuel readily available yeah so you'd, you'd want kind of a method of powering your stuff that doesn't rely on fuel
1: I'm actually wondering, like, what if you could just power drones off of, like, just these super thin solar panels? Yeah. And they're only, like, these are significantly smaller than a piece of paper solar panels. Like, they're less thick than a piece of paper.
0: When they say a thousand times thinner, they mean a thousand times thinner than a sheet of paper. That's the reference point they use in in the story. It's crazy. Yes. A few hundred nanometers across.
1: Yeah. It's like a few atoms deep or something like that. Yeah, Just it's crazy. That's awesome. But yeah, if you could like put that on the roof of a drone, how long could that go for? Probably very long given solar impulse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Unless there's shade, unless there's some shade and then you'd need battery technology as well.
1: Well, Apparently drones don't fly on cloudy days, but.
0: Right. Neither here or there. It would suck to plan this, I guess, military operation and then go, oh, oh, it's cloudy. Sorry, we uh, can't do it today. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they don't do anything. That Apparently that's
1: what they do because yeah. the drones fly very high and need to be able to see things on the ground to properly target stuff. So,
0: right because you wouldn't want them to be seen or be able to be easily shot down.
1: Well, no, that would defeat the purpose.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so you have to go high and I guess that's not even so much the the cloud cover preventing solar power. It's some it's that you're above the clouds and you wouldn't be able to see through the clouds. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. All this stuff about solar research that we talk about on a weekly or monthly basis this really makes me excited for the next generation of solar stuff to come out. The fact that it's getting thinner, more efficient, um, a wider variety of materials, wider variety of places where you can put those materials. I'm really looking forward to the solar future.
2: So to be clear, this isn't a panel is a thousand times thinner. It's just the energy collecting part. Right. So you still need the other parts of the panel that may or may not be reduced in
0: well, you may not size. want you wouldn't you I, you almost certainly wouldn't want a hundreds of nanometer across panel, right? Because it would be very like great in two dimensions, but in that third dimension, it would just be so breakable. You'd want to mount it on something more substantial. Yeah,
2: yeah. There's it seems like every other week we're talking about a new breakthrough. Like I know we talked about that. Oh, my <clears throat> Nick. <laughs> the uh the type of glass that scatters the light more that yeah. increases absorption instead of getting reflected off and you know that combined with you know the thinner cell combined with not using silicon to all this kind the of stuff it of seems like today. if you combine the all the improvements that we've had you get a pretty kick ass solar panel
0: yeah yeah absolutely all right, uh, next story here is to do with my favorite country, I think, right now, Sweden. I like, I like right all the now. Scandinavian countries, <laughs> their, their politics, their energy policies, uh, pretty much everything, and I, I've been reading about these Nordic countries, specifically Sweden, and how they like to recycle basically everything, they have very little waste that makes it to landfills. And the story that I read here, uh, basically, Sweden has now has more ability to process refuse for recycling and for just. I think they also incinerate a bunch of it in order to generate energy. They've actually run out of waste. They've run out of garbage, and are now have now begun importing refuse from Norway, from the neighboring countries. Basically, trucking in garbage, the opposite of Springfield effect where they were just trying to stuff garbage everywhere they are literally having to import garbage in order to be able to keep up their energy use from uh recycling and from waste so i think that places in north america could do with taking this kind of stance when it comes to waste because we end up just throwing a lot of what we use the like packaging Just stuff that we have used, we just end up throwing it in landfills. And Sweden, apparently only 4% of stuff that people throw away or get rid of in Sweden make it to landfills. The other 96% are either recycled or incinerated for uh, electricity.
2: Rob, my question is if you don't have landfills, where are you going to build your golf courses once the landfill's done?
0: On the land pre-landfill?
2: <laughs> the, so is, is burning the garbage, is that supposed to be better for the environment? Like technically it's still like producing carbon dioxide if you're
0: combusting it. Right, but you're combusting something.
2: Well, also consider
1: that, like, if you have a garbage incinerator that is a point emission source, it's much easier to scrub and make sure that it's, you know, being handled properly than, like, a methane leak in a landfill.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, landfills landfills are crazy for the amount of... The amount of greenhouse gases, they just sort of leach out over time as stuff decomposes and breaks down. Uh, what's this link you posted here, Nick, from NPR?
1: Uh, that is a story on Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Okay. I'm not sure if that's actually the story I wanted. <laughs> okay. But, well, it's Planet Money, so it's probably worth a listen. Okay. They did one, an episode not long ago, where they were talking about garbage incinerators and how you'd think that'd be great in a place like New York City, but Mm -hmm. how it just all went spectacularly wrong.
0: Okay. What happened?
1: Um, there was a questionably timed, uh, garbage fire around the time that a bunch of financial backer, backers or something like that were touring to see the garbage incineration facility. Mhm. And yeah, public sentiments were swayed and it just didn't go well. Huh. Yeah. My uh, feelings on garbage
0: incineration are well documented as pro. Yeah, it's better than putting in a landfill almost unequivocally. Also,
1: like, you can generate power from it. Yeah. That's great. Keep recycling glass and metal, but just burn everything else. Yeah,
0: for sure. All right, uh, Nick, you want to round out the main section of the show with uh, something about something about moose collision and honestly reading the headline tells me almost nothing but it does pique my interest so i actually heard about this
1: on uh on just listening to the news one day a strange story about a man who was driving and hit a moose Mm -hmm. and so i don't know if our listeners are Familiar with the size of a moose. They're very large creatures. They are. And so he hit the moose in such a way that the top of his car was ripped off and his windshield was punched in. But the thing is, he kept driving. Hmm. Like, I guess another guy, because this is, I'm assuming rural Newfoundland, so very low population density. So he happened to pass another driver on the highway. This other driver, seeing you know a a moving wreck of a car with a guy (laughs) bleeding profusely, still piloting the vehicle, decided to call nine one one and turn him around, or turn around and follow him. Eventually, I guess, got the guy to pull over and feel like, hey, are you okay? (laughs) Don't look like you're okay, and the guy's like. Oh, my God, I'm not okay. It's a good thing you stopped me. <laughs> wow. But yeah, like the guy, the guy has no recollection of the impact, which is apparently commonplace in car crashes. But he's also not
2: sure why he was driving either. Did you not wonder why his car wasn't recognizable anymore? Well, that's the th- this is why
1: it's an interesting story because it potentially sheds light on you know how the human
0: brain works, right that That's really weird,
2: right yeah or I, I, the guy was just trying to dodge any sort of repercussion from hitting this moves and pretending that he didn't remember mike you're there, so skeptical is, about the weirdest things
1: <laughs> there is a subsection of this article that says moose Tales met with incredulity so yeah. i suppose we can just file mike under there too i guess so <laughs> it, that's weird like uh, weird that people, mike doesn't
0: buy a story or <laughs> no the whole the whole story itself like i'm not i'm not incredulous i'm more just i i don't even know what like do they never if if they weren't If nobody intervened, would they just carry on the rest of their life with this car that was effectively destroyed? Like in the image on the the link, which I'll include. um, Like the car is in rough shape. There's no windshield. (laughs) They're looking through glass. Like, would they just continue on their daily life? Like, they would go home, go to sleep, wake up the next day, get back in their car that's destroyed and drive. Like, when would you clue in yourself? Would it ever happen?
1: if I recall correctly, he was a little confused why he felt breeze on his face,
0: but he <laughs> yeah. didn't
2: really, God, like it didn't really phase him. Huh? I like, I like the sub headline is Newfoundland drivers Blackout's not surprising. Scientist says not even like scientists say it's like one scientist said that it's not surprising.
1: Honestly, would you be surprised if someone su- sustained a massive head trauma and then, you know, had a blackout? I would,
2: actually. (laughs) Oh, but that's what happened. Right, but I'd be surprised that he didn't remember anything about it at all and just would have went on with his day. People frequently don't remember accidents. Yeah. But, like,
1: I guess the difference is...
2: Right, but he'd stop and say, why is my car destroyed? What happened? Not just... (laughs) But he... If if, if he endured head trauma,
0: like it says he did... (laughs) like it, it it looks like if you were sitting in the driver's seat of that car you would feel you would have gotten hit in the head by part of a moose or part of your car or like this isn't something where you'd sustain no damage it is weird that he would just sort of like that your brain would go into autopilot but like i know for instance if i'm walking home or even if it's kind of terrifying that even if i'm biking home on a busy road i will kind of zone out and just be on sort of autopilot and then be almost home and be like, Oh, where I don't remember the last two minutes of the road or something. And like my brain was just kind of making decisions for me. And I didn't have to think about it because everything was just sort of normal. If you were, if you were struck and had some sort of head injury and then suddenly just sort of snapped out of it and you're on the highway again, I can see how you would just sort of be like, Whoa, that's weird. Something's different, but I can't quite place it. And then it would take somebody Telling you, oh, this happened. You'd be like, oh, yeah, I guess that explains why my car is destroyed. But you'd never really clue into it until that point. It's one of those weird things about human memory that we don't fully understand. And that's, I think, what this article is trying to get at. I think. I agree. And Mike is incredulous. Wait. Oh. So, I, brooding. I have a I have a plan, Nick. We're going to need a moose. And we're going to need Mike's schedule for the next couple of weeks. Cool. Um, I want to hit his car with a moose and see how he <laughs> reacts to test this phenomenon.
1: The way you phrase that, it's like we're going to blast a moose out of a cannon at the car.
2: <laughs> that would do the job.
0: <laughs> we might need a couple moose. Sure would. <laughs> it's possible to repeat the experiment just to make sure we did it right
1: yeah because reproducibility is important in all cases
0: yeah that uh the relevant xkcd i think of of a scientist reacting to electric shock would uh would be relevant here yep (laughs) all right uh in that case that does it for our main stories we're gonna we're gonna play our little our outro music, and then come back with some of the the more the other interesting stuff, smaller stuff we came up with this week. But uh, for the time being, thanks for tuning into Future Chat. Uh, again, I'd like to thank Audible.com for helping to support the show. You can help us out by visiting AudibleTrial.com/unwind right now to start a free 30-day trial and to get a free audiobook. We we'll be back next week with more science and tech talk. Uh, special programming note. Next week will probably be the last show for a little while unless uh, Mike and Nick want to take the reins on their own because I have a wedding and subsequent honeymoon. So I will likely be out of future chat commission until the end-ish of August. But uh, at unwindmedia.com slash future chat, you'll be able to find past episodes of the show, this episode of the show, and plenty more. Again, that's unwindmedia.com slash future chat. See you next time. Bye. All right, I uh, I put that programming note in just as my own like r- 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 memory in, at the last minute, but uh, I assume that you guys wouldn't <laughs> take the reins of the show, but you could if you wanted to. Uh,
2: I don't do want to like, edit f- anything. Is are like a four week honeymoon. Uh, well, I
0: wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't want to or be able to. The day after the wedding, uh, the week after that, we're it's the August long weekend, and we're gone to a cottage. The week after that would be in Hawaii. The week after that will be in Hawaii. And then it's the 22nd, I think, 22nd or 23rd is a Sunday. So last does, week-ish does of August. Does Hawaii
2: not have internet access? It's, <laughs> it's kind of
0: weird. Uh, so, A, I don't want to do that. It'd be, if I lived in Hawaii, that would be another thing. But I don't want to do that um, from there. I would much rather. And Julia would also, I'm sure, be like, what (laughs) are you doing? Why are you packing your microphones to go down (laughs) around (laughs) here? I am fairly
1: certain that I was going to say, I bet Rob Rob does want to do it. It's just, he's like, man, I'm going to get in so much trouble if I do future chat
0: in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that there wouldn't be time. It's just that I, I also want to relax. Future chat, special Hawaiian edition. <laughs> I would go and visit the telescope and broadcast live from the protest.
2: Oh, there you the go. Protest.
0: That yeah. would be amazing. <laughs> that would be amazing. I don't even know if it's on the same island. I don't think it is. <laughs> it doesn't even matter. Just yeah. Close enough, man. Just go. <laughs> That's true. I'm much closer than I otherwise would be. Uh okay, that being said um Mike will finally get to your story from last <laughs> week about uh i guess several countries have new climate goals to deal with uh climate change. What are those
2: <laughs> well the u s and Brazil have updated their their commitments or come up with new ones, i guess to i believe. have 20% of their energy use on renewable non-hydroelectric sources. Um, And I guess the key non-hydroelectric part is because of the, I guess there's been controversy over uh, how hydroelectric kind of changes the environment quite a bit, that it kind of takes away from the renewable aspect, as far as just disrupting ecosystems and that kind of thing, like setting up dams and that. And such, right. so it's kind of like hydroelectric better than hydrocarbons, but it's not ideal, I guess. Um, and then China, what
1: was that? Sorry, I was just gonna jump in there. The problem is that whenever you do anything, there's
2: environmental impact, right? Like, yeah, I don't. I... But, was, but setting up like a wind turbine isn't the same as building a dam. It's yeah but your wind turbine relatively non disruptive
1: you're gonna start mm-hmm. killing birds if you set up wind turbines you're gonna disrupt the wind patterns
2: you're gonna give like, people headaches, Nick
1: <laughs> yeah you're gonna have all this stress and stuff, but <laughs> wind turbine sickness aside like it's just I don't know I don't know. I look at all the relevant numbers and stuff like that and then people are like, actually, hydroelectric is terrible. We should do less of it. And it's like, what do you people want? (laughs) Do you want the lights to come on? Do you?
2: Maybe just sending good thoughts out will will give us enough energy.
1: Just put up big parallel rods that can resonate with the good vibrations people are sending and generate
2: power that way. There you
1: go. Jeez. (laughs) Uh,
2: So, yes, that's US and Brazil. And China also committed or has a goal, I guess, to get 20% from non-fossil fuels. So they're not going as far as saying non-hydroelectric, but they're saying just non-fossil fuels.
1: China, China is currently in the process of building a lot of
2: dams. Yeah, so... Because which, cheap power. How about yeah, that? Yeah. Um, but China's been kind of labeled as this horrible carbon dioxide-producing country, but they're kind of given a pass because... They're still trying to get out of poverty for in a lot of places. Right. Like India that. being India being a, a similar case. Where yeah. They're kind we, of often given a free pass and say, okay, well, you guys can burn fossil fuels a little bit longer.
1: The argument is that, you know, we went through a period of industrialization where we, we built, we what? as industrialized nations went through a yeah. period of just burning the absolute bejesus out of some coal. To get yeah. us some nice cheap power. And yeah. so it's it's hypocritical to look at a nation that hasn't gotten that opportunity and saying, Oh, yeah, well, you can't now. You're yeah. gonna be poor forever. <laughs> Sucks to be you. Please make us some nice cheap t shirts. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um so yeah, there's these I guess these countries have kind of come up with new targets. But this anytime I see this kind of thing, it, it reminds me of the Kyoto Accord. And how once we completely missed the targets of that, it's like, oh, well, we missed it. And it's, that was kind of it. And it's, there's not really any accountability when it comes to making these targets. Like it's, it's nice to hear it being done, but it's not like, oh, if we don't make it, then there's going to be, you know, X, Y, and Z consequences or it's, there's no putting your money where your mouth is. In these cases, it's like, this is what we want to do, which is great, but how are you going to do it? And how are you going to ensure that, you know, you make that promise right now, what are you going to do in, you know, 10 or 20 years time, once, you know, new presidents are are in power and that kind of thing, to make sure that those targets are still being looked at. Right. So I, I guess I have a more cynical view on this. It's, it's nice to hear, but it's like, okay, well, let's see if it actually happens.
0: Yeah, I think the Kyoto Accord being... Sort of every most people pledged to it and then did very little.
2: Yeah,
0: makes me skeptical of any new sort of climate stuff. But uh, if they can do it, that's great, and by all means keep trying. But I'm not going to hold my breath. Uh, I may have to hold my breath at some point, but I'm not going <laughs> to hold my breath yet. Um, that that this will change.
2: We'll have gas masks. have yeah. To hold your breath.
0: Great. <laughs> Maybe we
2: th-
1: with these new super thin. So, uh solar cells we can just cover everything in the solar cells and yeah. hope that keeps up with demand
2: according to, according to various maps i've seen you only have to cover a small part of africa yeah. to, to power the entire world so we should just do that
0: you say that like it's sarcasm but that actually is mathematically real <laughs> it's no, it's, it's, it's great because rob, how are you going to distribute that energy rob
2: how are you going to distribute that energy
0: cars wires what?
2: you just run wires across oceans
0: yep okay. cars would be great
1: though if you could just get a tesla wait. to charge its battery and then drive down to it wait
0: <laughs> mike just said what are you gonna do string wires across oceans that is a thing we do
2: right Rob, now a not to distribute power to for communication yeah but it's the same idea it's really not but kind of it's not
0: it's not <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same but kind of no you wouldn't need you wouldn't want to have necessarily i mean it's not a good idea to have all your solar power in one spot it's just saying that compared to the surface of the earth it's a very tiny amount that would be needed you could, you would want it distributed
2: it's a pointless illustration to make <laughs> the hurdle is not places to put solar cells i know it's not the hurdle no it's not no <laughs> anyway
0: interesting thing about though The next story I have here is from IBM, who you do not think of as somebody who is still pushing uh, huge innovations in the chip-making department, but they are working with a company that is not Intel, or I guess several companies, none of which are Intel, uh, to make new, very, very tiny, very, very power-efficient CPUs for computers. Uh, Right now, they are making... Uh, the, the latest generation of computer chips is using a 14 nanometer, uh, engraving process. So basically every 14 nanometers, there's another transistor, uh, in 2016, they're moving to 10 nanometers, but, uh, IBM is working with a number of uh, chip companies to create seven nanometer chips. And I read this immediately after getting off my bike on, I guess it was Tuesday morning Probably not Tuesday Wednesday morning uh this seems crazy to me there a company like intel has been has been making chips for a really really long time IBM has made chips in the past, but they've kind of gotten out of being the the number one group to do this but they are now firmly pushing boundaries and pushing back against intel who is who have been dominant in this uh in this stuff and the coolest thing to me, the reason that I thought it was worth mentioning uh they're working with groups like samsung and uh a, a, an organization called the suny polytechnic institute i guess it's a, probably a university or that type of idea and they're not using pure silicon as they as the substrate but a silicon germanium alloy uh have they used pure silicon for like
1: since a long time ago as, as the substrate though I, they use other materials It's
0: not just pure silicon but
1: yeah no it, i didn't think it's i don't think it's been silicon pure
0: silicon for a while i could be wrong I might be thinking of something else. Maybe. I th- I think the th- they definitely use other materials in the transistors, but it's not what they're on. And they definitely, I, I don't think they've used germanium to much success so far. I'm interested, particularly germanium is not all that common an element. I don't know how much, how well this would scale to hundreds of millions of devices like already exist in the world. But I, I guess Aren't I, mean, they, I think it probably could. Aren't
1: they used extensively in solar panels right now? Germanium? I might be thinking of something else.
0: Uh it's possible. I, I haven't heard of
1: germanium. They're both being used. It, they're both semiconductors, which is why I ask. Oh,
0: yeah. I imagine yeah, yeah, that they're, germanium they're, is there for doping. They're right above one above the other, I believe. Um so they're now using they they've they use lasers to etch uh, these transistors onto um, whatever substrate you're using. And so they're now using, I guess this is probably just a buzzword, but extreme ultraviolet lithography. So they're going even further into the ultraviolet to. Ultra
2: ultraviolet. <laughs>
0: exactly. Uh, <they're>... Hyperviolet. <laughs> the, higher, <laughs> the more ultraviolet you go, the more energy you're using, but the smaller the wavelength uh of light. And so you can get more and more precise. And so that's what they need if you're going to do seven nanometer. Um, if you're going to make have a transistor every seven nanometers, you're going to need really, 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 really precise lasers. And uh, this actually beats uh, some of the research they were doing back in 2012, uh, where they made nine nanometer transistors using nanotubes, carbon nanotubes. But this is this is actually even smaller than that. And t- carbon nanotubes were were presented as sort of the future of computer electronics, and or at least one possible future of mm. of uh, electronics in general so it's incredibly um incredibly innovative to be able to take this even beyond a company like intel that is purely focused on doing this and they're saying that the seven seven nanometer process apparently has twice the energy or the power density of uh, the 10 nanometer one so i think that means it will be basically twice as energy efficient because you can have uh, at the same power, you will have um, twice the number of
2: chips. Mm. I didn't realize that making them smaller was a thing they were striving for. Really? I, I know, you know, making them faster and also more power efficient because I guess more on the mobile technology side. The big thing is, is how power hungry these processors are. Yeah. And so that the faster processor is going to drain your battery more, but making them smaller. I didn't think that was an issue. Like, especially when you're talking about cloud computing, like they mentioned cloud computing in there. So when you have giant servers where you're hosting these, you know, cloud computing systems, I didn't think that space was though. That being said, I guess you want your server rooms or your hosts to have, like they have those racks where they're all kind of compacted together. So I guess every little bit helps.
1: What I think is really funny is one reason the mobile, industry is so enthusiastic about making stuff smaller is so that you can then fit a bigger battery into the phone. Yeah. Or mobile device.
0: Well, the chip itself is tiny. Like the goal is to have it be as small as possible, but you want to fit as many transistors as you can onto that small area. Right. And so the smaller they are, the better. Right. Mm hmm. Um, yeah. So the company that, uh, that they're working with for these seven animator chips is called global foundries. And they're working with IBM exclusively to make these for the next 10 years. Um, So I'm, I'm pretty excited to see what like competition is always good. So having Intel has been missing their benchmarks for releasing new chips. They've been promising giving dates and then not uh, making those dates. And in some (coughs) cases being very delayed, uh, one of the latest Apple laptops was pushed, the, the release date was pushed back because of chip delays from Intel. And in the end, they, they just actually left, uh, they just left them behind and skipped a generation and said, okay, we're just going to, we're going to update this computer and it's not going to get the new processor. Mm. Uh, so having competition and having another company sort of pushing back against, um, back against intel is going to be helpful i think to them all right uh i always like hearing about uh transportation stories and so i really like hearing about this uh i think we've even talked about this in a past episode briefly about how ups designs their routes so that ups trucks don't have to turn left They will Mm. make three rights before they make a left because left turns in in densely packed cities are so hard to make. You have to worry about advanced greens, turning lights, uh, oncoming traffic. It's just way faster. Uh, And so there's a story here on Mashable from yesterday uh, about New York City formally making... uh, I guess they wrote a letter to Google asking for an option to be able to reduce left turns in google maps when you're doing navigation hmm. or to be able to d- at least work that into their their algorithms for uh directions right apparently there were th- there were 20 people 17 pedestrians and three cyclists that were killed in the last year in new york by vehicles specifically making left-hand turns and sounds like a lot it does it does seem like a lot and Obviously, that is if it's something so easy to reduce, because basically when you're in when you're sitting in the left hand lane through several lights waiting for cars ahead of you to get through, you're going to be pretty impatient. You're going to try to make a tiny gap yeah. and so you're going to be going too fast. And that's when these kinds of accidents happen. So knowing that uh, when you get to when you get to your desk or when you're getting to your destination, if you know how much faster it is to make like to go past the destination one block turn right and then turn right again, turn right again, and then go straight through the next intersection. That's incredibly helpful in terms of easing traffic congestion. One in terms of obviously pedestrian and cyclist safety. Uh, Apparently this is uh, also from the article NPR has said that 25% of all vehicle crashes involving pedestrians, uh, happened while the vehicles were turning left, like one quarter of pedestrian driver traffic accidents are from that. Mm. So obviously it's something that you would want to reduce. And, uh, I don't know if this will actually make it into Google maps, but I think that it's a good idea because everyone hates, um, everyone hates turning left. It's really, really annoying, and you try to avoid it on in traffic as much as possible.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it would even help just vehicle and vehicle collisions, just because people are stupid. And like, you'll often what I find happens a lot is if you have like say four lanes, like two lanes, two lanes, two lanes, two lanes, like going opposite ways. You'll have the people in your lane or people on your side trying to turn left, and people on the other side trying to turn left. So then they block each other's field of view. So then you're like, you think there's a gap there and then you start turning and then someone comes from the other lane next to the other left-hand turning lane. And the other guy has to either slam on his brakes because that person tries to take the gap that's not there. Or the person trying to turn left has to just kind of keep inching, inching, inching until there is a gap. And it's like, it's not an ideal situation at all to be trying to turn left. So I'm all in favor of avoiding turning left.
0: Yeah, for sure. Nick, did you have anything to say about turning left as a cyclist who has possibly been endangered by people frantically trying to turn left?
1: Um, I usually have to make two left turns a day. Okay. Uh, both
0: of them stress me out. Hmm. I'm I'm pretty lucky in that my commute, well, I guess mostly by design, uh, includes, I guess it includes two left turns. One of them is at a light that has literally no traffic coming in the other direction. So the, basically the only thing is the wait at the light because it's obviously it's not very trafficked. So it takes a while for the light to change. But then there's only one more. And just because of the way the light timing system works out and I go to work early enough, there's never, there's literally never any traffic on my side of the street. So I can basically just wait there. Um, but yeah, if, if I was making left turns in any kind of traffic, I would just, uh, not do that (laughs) the the way on, on a bike, uh, the way it works in downtown Ottawa, I'm not sure if if it's the same in Calgary with the one road Laurier where we have bike lanes, they actually have a little box on the right hand side of the traffic where you can basically you drive straight through the intersection on your bike and then stop at the far side of the intersection and you're basically in a box that has a little bike painted on it and that is where you can stop to be able, basically you stop at the light when the light changes you turn your bike 90 degrees you're pointing now you're pointing left of where you were and then going when the light changes yeah basically reducing any sort of danger from a left turn for a bike
1: yeah i i have used that system and i like that system a lot yeah uh, calgary does not have that on its segregated bike lanes in all locations anyway it,
0: it, it would be possible to do you would just have to know to do it and it's not yeah, it's not necessarily yeah. intuitive to do that
2: from what I've seen I think they just put advanced screens for any, any yeah. bikes that want to turn left
0: I've seen bike signals as well they have those in a couple of places yeah. here yeah
1: um yep my like most alterations I make to my route are to make my left turns more or less hazardous.
0: Yeah. Makes sense. All right, Nick, you got a story here, um, which I, this is probably part of a larger story, but, um, basically things that can go, that are in your smartphone now that are extremely useful that 10 years ago would have been extremely expensive, like prohibitively expensive to carry on you all the time.
1: Yeah. Now it's just a little, uh, spectrometer basically goes onto the phone's camera, as I understand it. And I mean, in this situation, they're saying, oh, yeah, you can test for skin cancer with this thing, which is good. I'm not here to argue that that's not great, but I don't know. I thought this would be interesting because it's part of a larger movement where people are just, you know, creating attachments for smartphones because there's so much computing power there and there's so much potential there yeah like nasa uses smartphones a lot now um like these you can basically have a scientific instrument that just attaches onto a smartphone yeah do like experiments and stuff
2: <laughs> yeah one of the things i've i've seen around quite a bit is the FLIR infrared cameras like the thermal cameras that you can, I think it's just an attachment onto the lens of the phone and with an associated app. And then it can, it can do like thermal scanning with your phone, which is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, So yeah, for people who, who would have a use for that, you know, even if you're just looking for, you know, thermal inefficiencies in your own home or for like a surveillance type thing. And, and it's all powered by your smartphone. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, having other types of attachments that you can, can put on can only do better. And I know we've talked about medical, other medical type applications for, you know, with the health kit type stuff that would potentially come into use in, in a more rudimentary sense, not, know hardcore medical sense but at least kind of pre-screening or yeah that kind of thing because i don't think i'd rely on anything like that for definitive i'm thinking doctors could
1: take that out into the field kind of thing and it could be really useful there
2: and it could yeah and it could flag for follow-up yeah medical examination kind of thing
0: yeah there's a lot of uh applications that have come out in the last couple years as our phones get more and more more advanced and also faster that are going to make them critical tools for medical not necessarily diagnosis but at least medical tracking yeah and so yeah if you if you had a spectrometer on your phone that would send the results to your doctor uh, if you did like say a weekly scan or something if you were at risk of of some sort of affliction there's so many good reasons to use that all the time and and obviously doctors would be on board with having because like doctors basically their job gets so much easier if the person, if their patient is collecting data on a regular basis instead of just sort of anecdotally saying, Oh yeah, I think a couple weeks ago, something, something, it's much better if you actually have sort of empirical data about your health than anything else. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And even, you know, like heart rate monitors or, uh, you know, just skin temperature or moisture, that kind of stuff, just, any sort of data collection might like could help for, for a doctor to try to diagnose and, and track how you're doing kind of thing.
0: Yeah, for sure. Exciting stuff and I'll, Yeah. Obviously we'll eventually I, this will come to the kind of thing where you can get it for a hundred bucks at some probably supply store. I think it might take a little longer for it to get into like built into a phone proper. But I think there will get to a certain point where it will be the normal thing to have one of these, if not on in your camera, at least in your home, sort of like a like an ear or not your thermometer, but like an under the tongue thermometer. It's just the kind of thing you have in your home to diagnose yourself with a fever, for instance, but uh, that uses your phone and can communicate like you can communicate the results directly to your doctor. And it'll be more than just temperature.
2: I think our future will be everyone wearing little like fanny packs with little attachments into it that you just put into your phone every time you need it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Fanny packs. Oh God. (laughs) Say it isn't. So
2: (laughs) they will be cool looking. Don't worry.
0: I imagine like project aura would be, you just have your smartphone and you have a bunch of little modules for different things in your fanny pack.
2: (laughs) Maybe, maybe not a fanny pack, but you'll have clothing that has little compartments. You can at least store things in. Yeah.
0: That seems more reasonable.
2: Yeah.
0: We're not bringing fanny packs back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So next to last story here. Uh, This, this piqued my interest so much because I I love hearing about the work we're doing. Humans are doing into genetics. Uh, What we've been able to do, what biologists and uh, geneticists have been able to do is create basically create new n- nucleotides for dna and I- they're variations on the the current ones the, um guanosine adenine thymine and cytosine um so those are the, the four well-known nucleotide bases for dna uh g a c and t well, guanine is what do you mean i think you mispronounced guanine or i did Okay, that, that's fair. That that was the one, because there's like three or four names that sound very similar. Um, but so what they've started to do in the lab is tweak DNA to see if we can make... DNA that has more than four letters is basically the goal. And to in that way, to give DNA new powers, either to just encode more information, like to use dna is information storage even more than we've we've done that a little bit but to to basically extend that alphabet um but so what they've been able to do is they've synthetically made two new nucleotides that are initialed p and z uh i will try to figure out what those actually stand for oh they're probably extremely long uh names so z is six amino five nitro uh two one H pyridone and p is two amino uh imidazo uh one two a one three five triazin four eight h1 uh yeah so do you have a link for those sorry do you have a link for those names i do have a link for those names it's it's in the story but uh so i'll put a link it's on uh it's in jacks you'll you will be able to find the link in the notes um if you're listening but they basically work with regular DNA so that if you incorporate those bases into DNA, the helix structure isn't affected and everything basically works. Obviously there's no life with this yet because it's completely brand new and we don't, there's no enzymes or anything in the human body or in any, in any living thing that can generate these, but it fits in the geometry properly. And the way we've been going with genetic research, uh, the, the goal of this is basically if you have these, if you have multiple base pairs, uh, the base pairs and different combinations of them are what code for different amino acids in, in genetic instructions. And so if you have extra bases, uh, you can generate way more like an orders of magnitude, more amino acids using those instructions. Um, so I don't know. Do you guys have any, any thoughts on this or any possible, um, I guess things you could do with it uses? Um,
1: well, one, I found a picture of what they look like. Okay. And yeah. It's neat. I see it. I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the structure of DNA or the DNA base pairs. Yeah. But I don't know. It's neat. Um, there has been work to try and back up data in bacteria kind of sort of thing. Okay. Just using base pairs, so that could lead to interesting work that way. Or like, you have some goo that is your backup and is alive somehow. Right.
2: If Jurassic World taught me anything, is that you can create militarized dinosaurs out of... <laughs> dna modification so i'm pretty excited for that
0: but this is more than that Hmm? this is more than just genetic modification this is adding new like this is expanding dna yeah yeah um before we get too far i'm going to point out for the live viewers uh there's an app in hangouts called showcase if you're watching this on google plus you can go and find and see the link that uh shows the pictures of the dna in case you're interested Um, I don't know. I haven't used showcase that much, but it seems like it would be useful if people actually find it useful. Let me know. Um, But yeah, you can make new dinosaurs without these new letters. These new letters are like infinitely more useful. You could make brand new, um, much more complicated life. Like we think of life as very complicated and in a lot of ways it is complicated, but this would make things orders of magnitude more complicated. Once we get to computing systems that can keep up with or that can sort of do as much computationally as the human brain can if they had this to work with they could make things that or conceive of things at least that were much more complicated and potentially useful or potentially destructive to humans than uh than we could ever <laughs> dream of
2: my understanding of genetic modification is that they'll t- take parts of dna from existing species Or known properties and apply that to other things in hopes that it'll get the same characteristics as the original thing, right? Yeah. So if you're coming up with new parts of DNA, you don't know what those parts do yet. Yeah. Right. So what would be. I'm not even. Sorry. (laughs) what, What would be the process if you're just coming up with new stuff and saying, oh, let's see what this does? And like, how would you know where to put it in the. DNA sequence
1: and well you wouldn't know like how do they even know that it works like
0: can something be alive with those base pairs well they don't know that yet but that's they're basically just scratching the surface they found these two letters or these two uh, bases z and p do form a helix they were experimenting with a bunch of others that kind of or almost did but they weren't quite helixes but these ones actually do and so it it it's the kind of thing where you would, you build these and we've been building custom DNA. I'll I'll call it custom DNA for lack of a better term for a few years now. But what we're, what they could try to do is basically build this DNA with custom things and then sort of run it through existing enzymes and existing processes in living cells to see what kind of amino acids it would generate. And then from there you'd be able to go and, see if those amino acids have any use in the body, see if they bind to create different proteins. Right. And just, oh. it makes experimenting a lot, a lot more varied if you have extra bases to work with. Like it completely opens up the possibilities for more biology than we can even conceive of. Man, that's true. I uh,
1: just completely forgotten that part. It's like, what amino acid would that even code for? Jeez.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's almost like a, th- throw everything at the wall and see what sticks process first. Right. As far as if it forms anything useful. And I think computer simulations would play a pretty big part. Oh yeah, for
0: sure. Those are getting better and better watching how proteins fold with different amino acids. So if you, if you discovered that some new combination of DNA generated some uh, amino acid and then that amino acid folded into a protein and left some new thing and then, there's a lot of experimentation that would need to be done, but modeling would certainly help narrow down possibilities of things to try. Yeah. Very cool. Because right now right now generating creating proteins manually by adding uh amino acids one at a time to a protein chain is extremely like uh not computationally expensive, but extremely lab expensive. Yeah. And so if you had a way to make that a lot more efficient using DNA to encode those instructions, it it would be potentially very useful to geneticists. All right, Mike, you wanted Nick to be here. Nick is now here. I'm um, here. What's your story about beer?
2: My story about beer this week is making beer as easy as pushing a button on your coffee maker to brew a cup of coffee. But Now you can brew a keg of beer just as easily. And hmm. Nick is our resident home brewer.
0: Brewmaster. So,
2: brewmaster Nick. So, I'm sure he'll have something to say on this, but the concept of it is they're saying beer is, you know, the second or third or fourth most drunk beverage in the world. And, but it's only made in like, you know, it's, it's insignificantly small percentage of homes by people. Whereas coffee is, you know, arguably equally or more popular than beer, but is made in, you know, 50 to 60% of homes. So why can't you make beer the same way you make coffee as on demand and customized as, as we know to make coffee. So the idea behind this Pico brew machine is that you add the ingredients for your wort is what is called Mm -hmm. Nick can be the authority on this. Yep. That's a wort. Yeah. And so you make the wort, and then from my understanding, you have to add it to the brewing process after the wort's made. So it's almost a two-step process, it, it seems like. Nick, maybe you confirm?
1: <laughs> I'm just trying to look at the article.
2: Oh, okay. So anyway, this this machine, it takes out the complication of making the wort. So you're, it makes the wort and then transfers it over to the container to actually brew the beer all on its own. So they're, they're marketing it as a set-it-and-forget-it process. So you, you add in your ingredients for the wort based on however you want to make your beer, and then it transfers it over and brews your beer for you. Hmm. And so once it's ready, it's it's ready, and you just chill it and drink it, I guess. And apparently the guy who reviewed this unit said it was good beer. So... I thought it was interesting, just the idea of being able to customize your beer and make it as accessible as coffee, possibly. Obviously a longer process, but yeah, it seems to be the kind of thing where anyone can kind of pick one up and, and make their own beer. Versus the effort that it takes to brew your own beer, as Nick can attest to. But some might say that that takes away from the art and the process of making beer. So I'd like, I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts and specifically next on, on this type of development.
1: Um, in terms of like, it takes away from the art and the process. It's basically something people say. Anytime a machine <laughs> takes over something that's imprecise. Yeah. Like that's not at all my concern. Like, sure. If you, if you get, pi- pico brewing and you find that you would like it just slightly different Then, by all means do it differently but i mean i guess the big difference between beer and coffee is that coffee takes you know a few minutes to make and beer takes a few weeks to make yeah but yeah
0: it's not the uh, same time scale for sure yeah
1: no they're yeah i think so I think that's probably the.
2: Well, home home wine kits are fairly straightforward, aren't they? It's the kind of set and forget it thing. You just let it sit as long as you need to. I don't know if you've ever made your own wine, but.
1: I know, I'm familiar ish with it. It's similar. You just, I think one of the biggest differences is you don't have to worry about carbonation. Yeah. Hmm. You let it sit for way longer, something. (laughs)
2: Nick, would you, would you, would you guys get something like this or at least use it?
1: Uh, if the price came
0: way down, then maybe. <laughs> so Nick, uh, the price here, it says $2,000, mm-hmm. which I'm assuming is American. So it'd probably be a little bit more in Canada. Um, yeah. what compare that to the cost of doing, having this kind of thing at home? Like it was a hundred or $200, something, right?
1: a bit uh, cheaper yeah oh yeah yeah like a tenth as expensive or less depending on yeah. what you're going for because you can you can buy kits that come with the wort like the already okay. brewed wort so all you need to do is put it in a sterile bucket pitch the yeast and seal it up hmm. then granted bottling is a separate step but yeah
2: you'd still have to bottle with this system too, though i think
1: yeah yeah, yeah, probably. So
2: hmm, that's interesting. So it's not really taking out a step if kits come with wart already.
1: True. Well and it, it depends on what you want. Like those warts that you can buy are not tailored to your own personal tastes.
2: That's true.
0: Hmm. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well guys, I think uh I think that about wraps it up for this week. I'd like to, to give a huge shout out to our current two viewers who have been with us through Ooh. pretty much the entire episode. Nice. Uh, thanks for the support, guys. Uh, I would encourage you, even if you have already tried Audible or have no interest in reading or listening to audiobooks, to go to audibletrial.com slash unwind and at least click on it to let, uh, let us know that you enjoyed the episode. And uh, feel free to recommend it to people if uh if you enjoyed it which it seems like you did or else you might be asleep that's that's obviously a possibility but uh yeah thanks for thanks for tuning in this week and we'll we'll talk to you guys next week for the for the last time in a little while next uh next sunday sounds good cool all right see you guys see ya bye